Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the gift of the body of Christ. Thank you that the only reason that we're here this morning is because of your great mercy to us and your Son, who is our King, who has redeemed us, who has called us by name, who has called us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and has shown us favor beyond any that we deserve. We pray that we would have hearts that remember that and are not so caught up in the pressures of life on this fallen world that we forget that we are in Him and at His right hand our pleasures forevermore. We pray that we continue to have hearts or that we would have hearts that would be zealous for good works to reflect Him rightly and to honor Him as our King. And as we t- turn to this passage this morning, we pray that, um, that we would again see the distinctiveness of His people compared to the nations around us and be called once again to be citizens of His country and not adopting uh, the culture of those who are foreign to Him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in Leviticus 18. Hi. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Doing well. This is um, this is a hotly debated chapter in our culture, um, and it's interesting because the first 17 chapters of Leviticus have been focused around, or at least directly related to, um, the tabernacle, right? The end of Exodus, we see the building of the tabernacle, a bunch of chapters on all the particulars of the material that's to be used and how they built it. And then Leviticus starts with how you do sacrifices, how you do the priesthood, how all of that stuff is there. And we've begun the Holiness Code, and even the first chapter of the Holiness Code deals with don't eat blood, it's part of the sacrifice, it deals with atonement. And then we get to chapter 18, is really the first chapter in Leviticus that deals with outside of the tabernacle. The next three chapters turn more broadly to this idea of living as priests in the promised land. How do you like that? It's Baptist priests in the promised land. It's a, it's a broad spectrum that he's now going for all the people. Um, what does it look like to be a citizen of this kingdom? Because remember, the whole idea is God takes them at the foot of the mountain as a covenant people. I will be your God, you will be my people. He is their covenant king and they're to live under his rule as a covenant king. Um, it's a, the old Caesarine Treaty idea in the ancient Near East where the conquering king, the great king, takes on the other people under his protection and in return they give him, well, in human terms, it's taxes. Uh, but, but with God, it's their loyalty, their obedience, and reflecting who he is. So chapters 18 and 20 focus on unholy practices of the current inhabitants of the land that must be avoided. So we see where they're going. They're going to Canaan. There's all these practices as they do. You're not to do that. And chapter 19 has some of that, but it also has holy practices that they are to perform. If they obey Yahweh in this, they will prove themselves to be His holy people and enjoy life under His blessing and favor. So each chapter that we see following here highlights that the people are to reflect God's holiness by closely following His commands. And now think of it. He's comparing it to what the, what the, the inhabitants of Canaan have lived. And we're going to see a lot of practices here that they were involved in that uh, I trust will turn your stomach. <laughs> um, I was going over with Tammy last night, and she went, oh, I don't need the visual. Oh, I mean, it's disgusting. But this is what they were doing, and they're going into this, and the lands around them, this is part of their 
culture, they're part of their worship, part of their understanding of the world around them. And they're to be distinct and not to do it. The reason that they're going in, number one, they found God has blessed them and has redeemed them. They're going into Canaan to clean it out. They're the, they're the, the tip of the spear of judgment on the people of Canaan for some of this stuff, right? What's the other side of that? Don't have a spear thrust at you for doing some of this stuff. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the thing. If you do this, we'll see it later, even the land will vomit you out. There's a very graphic, empty out to the stomach, get you out of it, is the idea there. So there's a warning and a call to, uh, to, uh, to holiness. All right, we're going to take it in, in pieces here. Uh, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. All right, when we begin a new section, first question we ask is, who's he talking to? Moses. He's talking to Moses. And it's a, it's a command to all the people, not just the priests, not just Aaron and his sons, but it's to, it's to everybody, right? It's a whole nation. The people of Israel, again, this highlights that the holiness code is not just for the guys in funny hats. It applies to everyone who identifies with Yahweh. There is no lesser standard for the guy that's running a farm than there is for the guy that's making sacrifices in the tabernacle. There's no lesser standard. They're, that's the, they're a kingdom of priests. That's what they're supposed to be. Alright. What is the first thing that Moses is to tell the people from God? What is the first thing? I am the Lord your God. We've seen this before, right? Why does he do that? Why, why does he... We know. Why? Why would he do that? They need a constant reminder. They need a constant reminder. What are they being reminded of? Of what are they being reminded of? If you want to use the Latin Oxford English. What are they being reminded of? What they just came from, which is? Exodus. Exodus. Who was the Lord at, in Egypt to them? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, that's right. He was this God thing, propped himself up as this little puppet deity. And yet, God reminds them, I took you out of that. I am the Lord your God. And put that in relief to what he's going to talk about in a minute. Your, your <laughs> depraved desires are not the Lord your God. Your cultural pressure and falling to it is not the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Right? So he's again introducing himself, setting up uh, himself as the one delivering the law. And what does that tell them about the law? Is it Moses made or God made? It's God made. It comes from him. Therefore, it reflects him, right? A writer writes a certain way because it reflects their personality. He is writing the law and he's reflecting himself in it. He's done this before. It's self-identification. The basis of all law is Yahweh. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to see this again in verse 30. I am the, it makes an inclusio, the smart guys call it, where it starts with God, it ends with God. He's all over this. Okay, It's all about reflecting Him. Whom does He specifically call them to be distinct from? Notice the language that's used here. Where you've been and where you're going. From the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Um, there's kind of a merism there, if you think about it. 
we've talked about merism before. It's a Hebrew construct. We, we use it from A to Z, from greatest to least, you know, head to toe. It's kind of the same idea. Um, you are to be holy as I am holy. From, from the time I brought you out to the land I'm taking you to, you're to be holy as I am holy. They're to walk in His rules, not theirs. And that word that's, that we translate to walk, and, and you probably already know this, it, it just means to, it's, a, it's a metaphor that you are to um, completely, wholly obey the command, blesses a man who, who what, walks not in the counsel the ungodly sits all those metaphors that are used so sits not in the seat of the scornful scoffers depends on key james whatever his light is in the law of the lord and his on his law he meditates day and day and night and those are all metaphors for resting in obeying in obeying the law of god the commands of god and notice the comparison there the one is chaos <laughs> And one is order and peace, right? And there's this, there's the, there I think is something that we often miss, is that what we're described in, in chapter 18 is chaos. In fact, some of the language says rivals. This stuff injects nonsense into what should be a harmonious relationship. And so God is calling them to peace, peace as they were created to live. All right. Look at, uh, look at this, laws and statutes. What is that regarding? Well, remember the, the law, when it talks about laws, it's generally talking about case law. Remember we talked about, he gives examples to bring out a principle. You know, just if your neighbor loses his ox and his, and his donkey, you know, then bring it back to him. It doesn't mean you find a camel. Oh, it doesn't say camel. It's the principle's there. So there's that, his laws and his statutes, which are the specific decrees and rules of God. Again, it's a merism stating the entire law of God is included. Look at the end of verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. The complete law of God. If a, if a person does them, he shall live by them. Is that repetitive? I mean, if he does them, he lives. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, if he does them, he's going to live by them. Is that what that means? Is it just kind of a circular thing? or What is it talking about? Living by them implies like a way of life, and just obeying them could construe just like, okay, well, I've killed them, I'm going to do whatever it is. That seems kind of repetitive to me. If, we, if that's the meaning of it, if it's just if I obey it means I live by it, then that's kind of repetitive. I think there's something else going on there. The first comes to mind for me, uh, where your where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay. So in other words, it what you do um, defines you. It, it uh, forms you and shapes you into a way of life, and it changes you. So if you live rightly, it's a good thing. If you live wrongly, it's a bad thing. Okay. It's shaping. It's shaping. All right. It's interesting. I think I realize what you're trying to get at. Okay. So if you do these, you'll be alive to do these. You'll be alive to do these. <laughs> In other words, we get to chapter 20, you won't be. Yeah. Is that Okay, well, there's that. There's that. Um, you will live by them. Anybody have another translation of the ESV that would say something different than live by them? Okay, do your, do your electronic researches, do your text comparisons. <laughs> you shall do and keep mine organism. I mean, it's still the... You will find life through them. Find life through them. That's an interesting one. Who, who says that? Uh, that's NLT. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Borrowing from the NIV. Has to be. The mushy New Living Translation. I'm just flipping through you. I know. I'm not. I'm not judging you. You are. You are. What is it? NIV says it too. Yeah, I think. The idea. The idea here is um, life. 
not just an, a function of living. Yeah, 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 just my checklist. You live by them. Some have argued that, you know, this, if you do this, there's eternal life there. You can have eternal. You know, it's kind of a plaguing idea of works to that. Well, what's going on is, if anything less than what God has created us to be, you're not living. You're, you're broken. It's a, tire, it's a car with three tires, you know. It's, it's not quite working. It's not going to flourish, I guess is the buzzword today. There's a call to live uh, in God's blessing, in His favor, in, in His peace, in His order. So it's not repetitive. I, I, in my view, it, it's calling us to live as we were created to live. And we'll see some of that later on. Quick reminder, if we see this language, is it telling us the Israelites were to earn their relationship with the Lord through their obedience? Is that what it's saying? If you do this, you live by it. You are in a relationship with me if you do this. It's kind of a loaded question. Is that what it's saying? When was, he, when was the law given? In what period of redemptive history was the law given? Before or after the Exodus? After. He's redeemed them. He's saved them. He's claimed them. They're His. Then He gives them the law. This other stuff was His grace, right? His mercy to pull them out of slavery and then gives them the law. They're not earning the relationship with God by their obedience to the law. They're already in a relationship with God. I would say apart from the law. The law regulates the relationship. The relationship is there. The law is regulating it. It doesn't create it. Relationship with the Lord is always grounded in His gracious Redemption, Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows His love for us in that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The relationship is there, but it's regulated by the law. But, and this is where the difficulty comes in, faithfulness to others in a relationship is necessary in order to continue in fellowship with them. Just a very basic example if Tammy and I are married, and we are, and I am not faithful in the relationship, but I have been, it, I don't want to start it. This is a hypothetical. There's going to be some distance in the relationship about the space of a plate being thrown at you at 100 miles an hour. That's the distance of the relationship. It's, but we're still married for a while. We're still married. We actually have a pact. If, any, if there's any nonsense that goes on, we have said there will be no divorce. One of us will die. I mean, you know, she's just, <laughs> we've already... Natural causes. Natural causes, certainly. Um, or, orchestrated natural causes. Um, so, but, but there's... But faithfulness, I mean, that's an extreme example. But even in, in like, how... Uh, if there's some not caring for the other, if there's some emotional thing going on, there's a... There's a a breach of that faithfulness to, to prefer the other, right? And so there's a distance in the relationship. That's what's going on uh, here. And, and this is a national thing for them. Um, and it's what goes on in our relationship with Christ. He says in John 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's the right response to His gracious redemption to reflect His holy character. Alright, I've stalled long enough. Look to verse 6. Yeah, we're just going to gloss right over this. Yeah, I know. It's tough. No. No, it would just say Arkansas citizenship. Um, none of you... Verse 6... I'm kidding. It's a joke. Verse 6. None of you... It would be funny if it weren't. Anyway, none of you 
shall approach any uh, one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father of your daughter-in-law, she is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And let's let's stop there. Please. Um, the first commands that we see deal with illicit sexual relationships with close relatives. The first question I asked myself when I started reading this is, why is this necessary? Why is this necessary? Where did they, they come from? Where did they come from? This is... Yes. There is... In, in the records that we have from the ancient Near East, there's not really a whole lot of evidence of incest going on in Egypt, except in the royal family. Why would that be? They're gods, right? They have to breed within the gods. So there's some of that going on. So there's, there's, the idea here is that it may be a polemic against Pharaoh's family. Some of that. In Canaan, there's not a whole lot of recorded incest going on there. But we got an issue here. How, uh, how, what, what were some of the regulations about uh, Israelites marrying? What's a, what's a big one? They can't marry who? Outsiders. Outsiders. They can't marry foreigners. They can only marry within the country of Israel, the nation of Israel. How uh, was land divided up and passed down? We went through Ruth. Yeah? Well, by, by tribe, I guess. By clan, by Even tribe? That, if you married someone from a different tribe, then... You didn't get your birthright. Right. You might be passing up your property right by marrying somebody from another tribe or another clan. So there was a tendency to want to, to marry within the clan. And depending on the size of the clan, uh, you may have slim pickings. So there was a kind of a pressure to do some of this to kind of keep the land there. And yet, he says, you're not to do that at all. No matter the anxiety you may have over, who am I going to marry? The clan. No, no matter what the desire, the, the desire is to go ahead and secure your family property, what is he saying? In this, you're to obey me, even if it looks difficult in your circumstances. You're to trust me, even if you go to a 200-member Baptist church. <laughs> there is a call to obedience, a love of God, a love uh, to trust that He will resolve the issues to make this work and not follow what looks practical. Sister wives may be practical, in this situation, but it's depravity in God's kingdom, right? 
Um, okay. They weren't to marry foreigners and generally tried to marry in the clan to, pro to protect their land and inheritance. The options were limited with those stipulations. All right, the general rule in verse 6 is spelled out, and then 7 through 17 uh, kind of go into more detail. Uncovered nakedness, if you're in East Texas, is nakedness. Here is a polite way of saying have sexual intercourse with. The assumption here, it's not mentioned, but the assumption is that the father-daughter relationship is absolutely not going to happen. That should never happen in Israel. And thank God. Um, all right. A couple of things. I don't want to go through every variation here. But in verse 7, when he talks about uncovering the nakedness of your mother and equating that with the uncovering the nakedness of the father, what's the assumption there? What is it pointing to? That's exactly right. There's a one flesh baseline there. What you do to one, you're doing to the other. And you see that elsewhere in, in this passage. Um, your brother, your father, your uncle, all of those, you're shaming them by doing this stuff. Um, all right. In verse 8, uh, bring this out too, it says, um, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, it is your father's nakedness. That Think non-birth mother there, if he married, if the wife dies and brings on. Do we have an instance in Genesis, oh those many years ago that we did Genesis, where this went on? Where a son went after not his birth mother, but his father's wife. Do you remember? Who, who was it? There, there was an eldest son of twelve that did this with Jacob's wife. Um, what was her name? I have it down here. Anyway, one of one of the lesser wives, as that was ranked. Um, Billa, that was her name, Billa. Uh, she was a non-birth mother to Reuben. And as an effort to establish his supremacy among the brothers to take over when his father died, he slept with his wife to establish this is my, I mean, it's kind of a cultural thing. Here's the thing. You see a lot of this kind of stuff going on in history <laughs> up till now. I mean, Aaron... Seems like married pretty close. Uh, we talked about that. Uh, Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. Leah. Leah. Dad, come I did it again. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, so you have a lot of this kind of stuff going on before um, and after this law is given. What are we to do with that? It wasn't declared as the law yet. Okay, it wasn't declared as a law, but don't you just know? I mean, shouldn't you just well, know? We just know because we've grown up in the law. When Jacob married uh, Rachel, or thought he was at least, was he, was he shooting for sisters on that one? No. He was tricked into that, uh, and kind of, I guess, did the honorable thing, whatever that would be. Um, did that work out well for him? Peace, harmony... Reality TV show. Well, did that work out? No. Anytime we see this kind of stuff going on, Solomon. It never ends well. Yeah, it was tolerated, but not. Yeah, it never portrayed as a good and right thing. There's chaos there. Except we got the twelve tribes of Israel from it. Yes. Good can't come from it, but it doesn't mean that it was good. Right. There's a lot of. We got Solomon out of uh, 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 rape and murder, so which is another thing. Uh, again, if you want to talk about the exceptions to abortion, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, 
you have good things coming out of some of these relationships, but here God clearly says, this is an abomination, right? This is an abomination. Don't be like the cultures around you, and, and don't go for what's expedient, but trust Him and His law, um, and Him to be faithful and to provide you the blessings that He's promised. Um, starting with verse 9 through 16, Yahweh goes into detail of prohibited incestuous relationships and there are three levels. We'll just generally talk about them. There's first, there's the immediate family unit. Second, there are blood relatives, but who are extended family. And finally, there's close family through marriage, which was unique. There was there were some laws in the culture around them about uh, about uh, well, even our modern law generally talks about uh, consanguinity. You know, the, the affinity of of, of, of blood relatives, but. He goes even further to say, by marriage, by adoption, you know, if there's a second marriage or whatever, you can't do any of that stuff. So it goes even further than, than some of our own state laws would go. Others, uh, other prohibited relationships. All right. Uh, verse 17, a man is not to have sexual relationship with a mother and her daughter or any granddaughter of the mother. mother. The word here is depravity. What's at issue here? Think about the situation. Um, a woman is widowed, for example. She has children. And uh, in, the, in the marriage laws of the time, Leverett or whatever, she comes over with her family under the protection of a man. This uh, opportunity for exploitation of children is high here. It's not related to me, Right? He cuts that out. No possibility of this being a good thing. No, uh, no, no, no uh, Quran relationship going on here. Um, you have a very specific rule against the exploitation of children and calling that good family relationship because they're all under the whatever. It, it's, it's dealt with. And he calls it depravity. A marriage is supposed to offer a covering of protection to the woman and any family she may bring with her. Such a relationship would be the opposite of the protection that was promised. Um, again, a sister brides prohibited. Notice the language. What's a rival wife? <laughs> There's a story... Of Jacob, I use I go back to Jacob uh, uh, with this because there's that story of you know he's out working in the field with the goats, which is difficult, difficult work, and and he comes in, and as he's coming in, uh, Leah says to Rachel, um, "Hey, uh, my son Reuben uh, uh, got some mandrakes. Want one?" <laughs> Rachel says, "Sure." Uh, I know it's your turn to be with Jacob tonight, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you a mandrake if you let it be my turn. What's going on there? There's rivalry going on, and he's just, you know, tired shepherd guy, and he's, uh, the deal's going on for his evening is planned. And there's a, this constant movement toward being the better, the more loved. There's a, always a doubt about, am I the one? You know, and he says it clearly, rival wife, a rival wife, immediately polygamy injects rivalry and chaos into the home, no matter how much they doctor it up with the edited footage of a reality show, there's chaos there, and we're not to have any of it. Israel is not to have any of it. All right, verse 19, we've seen this before in the cleanliness code. Um, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. All right. Not, not too much argument from this crowd on those two things, I'm sure. Uh, again, this is the intentional... Disregard for cleanliness before Yahweh. This is more of a heart issue, and the penalty for that uh, is to be cut off from the people. We see that in chapter 20. All right. What term in verse 20 comes to mind when you read that verse? What term immediately comes to mind? Sexual 
coveting? Covet your neighbor's wife? What do we call that? Adultery. Starts with an A, ends with adultery. Adultery. Where does this, where's this grounded? Ten Commandments, right? There's, there's uh, well, it's, it's adultery and covet. Both of those are, are there. All of this is grounded, really, in that, in that baseline, in that law reflecting God's holiness. It's about sexual ethics that, that are acceptable to Yahweh. Um, then we get to this interesting deal. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is perversion." Now, it's interesting to me that most people would re- be repulsed by verse 19, passing kids through a fire to some god. Incidentally, how does Yahweh have... He also demands their children, but how does He demand their children? What do they do to, to, to mark their children? Through circumcision. The covenant, it's not you destroy the child... It's that you set them apart to me. It's a difference of, of um, approach and a difference of intent. The, there's this burning of children that he's saying you're not to be a part of. And then most people would also hopefully be repulsed by verse 23. Yes? We throw up a little bit in our mouths on that one? Yes? So why aren't we repulsed in our culture with verse 22? What does it say about a culture that rips this and says, that's old. That's Why would you listen to a book that's, you know, laws that were written 3,500 years ago? You, you don't want to wear... Blended fabrics, you don't want to eat lobster, or you, you eat those things, you wear blended fabrics, and you disregard those laws, but you can't disregard this. They just love each other. If you say that this verse 22 doesn't apply, that, that we can disregard that, then what have we done? Stoke the fire. And other things. If it, and I say this to those who claim to be Christian and, and still are arguing for the culture's moral standard. You can't disregard this one and then keep the other two intact. It doesn't make sense. All right. This is the first reference in the Old Testament to Molech, the god of the Ammonites. Why is this here? Why is this here? Why would he go to don't bring your kids when we're talking about all these sexual relationships that are illicit, why, why would that be an issue? Seems out of place, doesn't it? Was it is he alluding to the just the sexual rights that they had in the different cultures, and maybe this was part of that? I don't yeah, some some have some have argued that that. Uh, giving the children was actually giving them to the, the system of temple prostitution at the time. And there may be some truth to that. But every time it talks about the worship of Molech in Scripture later on, it talks about burning the kids and offering them as a burnt offering in the fires of Molech. So that may be some of it, but it's overall the worship of this false deity. Why would it be included here in the laws that are grounded in you shall not commit adultery? Well, the the natural progression of adultery is a, a bastard child. Okay. So it does fit in the sense that if somebody does screw up in this way, that they would want to get rid of that child to either cover up or, you know, dispose of the abomination. So, so there's a practical side. 
this makes me look bad in the covenant community. This um, keeps me from from saving my wealth and retiring at 65. You know, it, so there's a practical side. Yeah, we'll go out in the field, we'll burn it to my leg. Oops. You know, I, 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 I'm just assuming he's another goat god or something. Um, I don't know the particulars of that. I, from what I recall, kind of like a Odin or a Zeus kind of in their, I mean, but I'm not sure exactly what. And like Egypt had God of the River, God of Fer. I'm not sure where he would fall into that. It may be a lot of those kinds of things. I'm not, but... Um, He's a bull. Okay. And they didn't burn him. He would have fire in his stomach and they put his, the kids in the hands. And the hands were made, or the entire thing was made out of like some kind of iron, not iron, but something that would get rid of cotton and would burn them alive. They would just put them in fire. Oh, wow. So it's pretty graphic then. Bad. Yeah. So as bad as I imagined it, that's worse. Um, why? Why would it be included here, you think? How does God describe idolatry in Scripture? Whoring. Whoring. We saw that in the last chapter, didn't we? Um, as adultery, unfaithfulness to Him. It makes sense that it would be here for that reason. Okay. Verse 22. Um, any doubt here that God doesn't like homosexual acts? Any question on the translation? Do we have better Hebrew that maybe help us out there? I don't know. The word abomination seems pretty, pretty stout to me. Any questions on that? That's Old Testament, right? Uh, well... Paul seemed to think it was kind of a bad deal. Uh, Romans 1, 27, And the men likewise gave up natural relations, the way we were created, the design, the divine order, natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 or do you not know that the righteous, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, not, not really too, too subtle on that. And like I said, it comes between the prohibition against child sacrifice and bestiality. And God characterizes it as an abomination to hate or abhor. Um, the other issue, not only is homosexuality to be shunned because it's immoral in the kingdom, but also because it was a very common practice in Canaan. Very common. Um, I'm just going to leave it there. Very common. The Old Testament condemnation of all sorts of homosexual practice is unique in the ancient Near East. It was assumed in the culture around them at the time. And in verse 23, you have the final specific sin dealt with in this chapter. Do you see kind of you feel kind of a progression here? Kind of a Romans 1 progression. Close family, extended family, the incest, that's bad. Don't do that. Then you get to sister wives, and that's bad. And then you get to this stuff, and uh, it's all progressing toward this is unholy. This is an abomination. This is depravity. This is the language that he uses in these last few things. The penalty for bestiality is death, and we'll see that in chapter 20. Just as homosexuality is an abomination, bestiality is a perversion. And that word there, perversion, means to confuse or mix up. The idea is that the act is a violation of the divine order of things. Um, 
Bestiality was also an accepted practice in the ancient Near East. The only culture that we have record of that has laws uh, regulating this is the Hittite law. And they, they outlawed except in cases of horses or mules. They want, they're conservative, I guess, on that. So this is, a, this, is where, this is where this goes. What does this show? When you are untethered from the, the law of God, written both in creation, in nature, and in His Word, what's to stop you? Right? This is where the heart of man goes to this kinds of stuff. Why should he have to write this? Because we go there. Humanity is broken. And so he does this in verses 24 through 30. What's the consequence of the practices? Verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these nations... I am driving out before you, uh, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who are before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them, And there it is. I am the Lord your God. What's the consequence of the practice? They're cast out. He uses the language of the land, vomiting them out. And yet he says what? So keep my charge. Keep my charge. The noun charge derives from the verb that means guard and keep. Do you remember that? Genesis 2, there's the idea of the, the commands to men, the directives given to men in Genesis 1 is subdue and increase, which are kingly duties. And in Genesis 2, there's this guard and keep. Guard from the outside, keep it maintained on the inside. It's a priestly duty, and he's saying it here. Guard and keep my word. Don't practice these things. Protect against it. Teach your children why we don't do this. Not only are they to obey the law of God, but they are to protect it for future generations. All right. In their past and their future, Israel confronted nations whose manner of living differed radically from what God had intended for His creation. Not only did living this way remove them from God's favor and blessing, but it put them directly in rebellion against Him where they could expect His full judgment. Human sexuality is a good part of God's creation. However, humanity is a broken race and sexuality can be and often is misused. Apart from Christ, our hearts go there. What's expedient? What's practical? Our hearts push to be untethered from the borders of the kingdom to play in the chaotic wild with disastrous results. But there is protection in the kingdom, blessing in the kingdom, Freedom in the borders of the kingdom. Like Israel, we're not to be defiled with what the nations around us are doing. We're to live in the kingdom. We're to live in the borders where there is no chaos, no disorder, no rivalry. If we follow what he said, I'm actually arguing here for the superiority of one culture over another. Is that okay? I know it's not PC. Um, I think the culture of Christ is superior than the culture of the pagans around us. We are to enjoy life under His favor and blessing as we live holy lives that spread His holy kingdom on the earth. Um, You see this again and again in the New Testament. Be separate from them. Come out from among them. This whole idea... 
Um, not in location, Paul says, we can't leave the earth. Am I getting some, some entertainment from behind here? That's great. That's, that's why we're going to switch this around. Yeah. And I do a little finger order. Uh, anyway. Not in location. We can't leave the world, but in practice we're to be separate from, from them. Paul, we talked about in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about no unrighteous will inherit the kingdom. He goes to the list. Ends that in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's priestly language. That's ordination of a priest language. The language of Leviticus of the setting apart of priests for service. Even more than ancient Israel, we are to be a kingdom of priests to our God. We are to guard and keep what has been delivered to us. That includes more than knowledge of doctrine, although it does include that. It also includes holy living in all areas. And it's real easy to pick stuff out that's in the culture and point and accommodate a trend in the heart that's already there. And not fight that, not guard against it, not keep it, maintain it. It's holy unto Christ. It's real easy to say, I'm not. I was joking with the guys on Friday night. You know, some of them were saying, Oh, I'm getting a little thin in my hair. Look, all the guys in this class have one excuse. They can always go, See, Kevin, at least I'm not as bald as that guy, right? We can do that with bald, it's okay. But we're not to do that with our hearts. We're not to do that. We're not to say, At least I'm not like. The gay pride parade over here. Well, what pride parade are we having privately? Celebrating our own autonomy and not guarding our hearts. To do so is to reflect our love for Christ and our thankfulness to Him for what He's done. And we need to go. So let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the restraint that it has on the heart. And we pray that we would willingly take on this yoke, even though the culture screams that it has freedom, we know that our freedom rests within the borders of your kingdom. And we pray that we remain there. In Christ's name, amen.